our hearts were made to worship. And it's always good to uh, come before the Lord and worship before we come before His Word. And so we're back in Acts chapter 9. So if you'll flip in your Bible to Acts chapter 9, we'll be back into uh, our series with Acts as we took a pause with uh, the book of Esther. And uh, Pastor Tony preached through the 10 chapters of Esther. And uh, we were in kingdom culture there before Esther, if you'll remember. And so we walked through uh, the early church and what God was doing in and through the early church. And uh, we talked about the culture of the kingdom and how it's oftentimes opposite of what we experience in our world today. And then we saw an example of that in Esther and how Esther and Mordecai had become assimilated into their culture, and uh, they became familiarized with everything that was going on in the Persian Empire, and so uh, they began to look like everybody else, and they weren't uh, living in the culture of the kingdom, and then there was the turning point with Mordecai and Esther, and so as we were able to celebrate that Wednesday night and how God rescued them, and uh, it is a celebration that they continue to this day, and so it was uh, really neat to be a part of that and how it... Uh, fell on Wednesday, and it just all worked out perfectly how God did that and how He orchestrated it. And so we're back in Acts chapter 9, and so the last time that we left Acts, I believe Pastor Rod was uh, with us on Acts chapter 8, and so he uh, led us through the uh, encounter that Philip had with the eunuch, and so uh, we saw the experience of how the eunuch came to know the Lord and uh, was baptized, and so then we jump into chapter 9, and so we'll begin today in chapter 9, but let's pray for the reading of God's Word as we begin. Pray with me. God, we bow before you today. Uh, God, this is your day. Uh, Lord, it has always been your day since you ordained this for your glory, and so today, uh, Lord, we are honored to be able to gather together to celebrate you and who you are, and as the song said, the goodness of what you have done and what you have accomplished, Lord. Uh, Lord, I know that as you uh, hung on the cross that Friday, God, you said it is finished. You completed the work that you came, that you set out to accomplish, Lord. And God, for that, we celebrate that today. And Lord, as we look at our own lives, God, we're grateful that it is not finished, that you are still working, that you're still orchestrating circumstances and situations that you're still uh, doing things, God, for your glory and for our good. And so today, as we look at the life of Paul and his encounter with you, as he, uh, Lord, encountered you for uh, the first time as Lord, God, I pray that you will challenge our hearts today. God, that we won't take preconceived thoughts, things that we uh, think we know or believe to the text today, but God, we'll see it for what you have and have written it to be, Lord. So we pray for eyes to see. God, we pray for ears to hear and a heart to understand today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we'll be in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What is it that you believe to be true about God? What is it that you know to be true about God? When you think about God and you think about who God is and you think about how God Uh, works and you think about the character and the nature of God, what is it that you know to be absolutely true? You see, in your life and in my life, we all have these uh, belief systems in our life, and, and we build these based upon our own comfort levels, 
And maybe it's some, an experience in the past that we had or an expectation. And so we build these in our life, these belief systems, and we operate within those belief systems. And so in your life and in mine, we all grew up, we all had these experiences in life that caused us to view God a certain way, uh, to experience God a certain way, and to operate or to act based upon what we believe. And so if we were to go around the room today and talk about the things that you have based your life upon, we, we sang a song, I will build my life upon the foundation of Jesus. And so when we think about what that means, you see, when we think about the world today, the world has, well, they've got a lot of definitions of who Jesus is, right? They've got a lot of opinions of what Christianity should look like, and uh, culture certainly tried to impose their belief system upon Jesus and Christianity. But we've done the same thing. You see, there's things that you believe to be absolutely true in your life. And you've built that system based upon something someone told you, maybe some interpretation that you've had or an experience that you had. We've all done that. You see, in America, this often manifests itself as a cultural Jesus, right? So as long as Jesus does what we think he should do, well, then we'll believe, Right? If, if, if we pray for something and there's an answer to that prayer, well, then we'll, we'll believe more because God did what we thought he should do. We often attribute things to God that we want to be true about him. For instance, uh, a very popular verse, uh, all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You've probably heard that verse before. You may have quoted that verse in your mind or heart. And so what the culture says about that is, well, if all things work for my good, that means I get what I want. That's the cultural, cultural Jesus. Or this is a popular one, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me, right? Philippians 4.13, very, very popular. Well, the world believes that I can do all things because I can do what I want. Right, And so I can say, well, I want to win this sporting event, or I want to get, uh, I want to accomplish this task, you know, whatever it may be. And so we, as a culture, say, well, if I can do all things, and that's what the Bible says, well, then I can do what I want, because I can do all things through Jesus. But then when things don't work out the way that we wanted, or the way that we thought, what happens is, and this is the craziest thing. When things don't go the way that we think they should go, we begin to question God, not our belief system. Is that not the craziest thing? That when, when things, you know, when bad things happen in our life or situations don't turn out the way that we desired, well, then we begin to question, well, God, where were you? Well, God, why didn't you do this? Or God, why didn't you do that? And so we begin to question everything about God. And all things true about God come up for uh, debate again. And we say, well, I'm not really sure if what I thought about God was true because God didn't do whatever that is. Instead of us looking at our belief system and saying, is it possible, is it possible that what I I thought what I came to believe to be true about Jesus, about Christianity, is it possible that I was wrong? Is that possible? I mean, right? And so as we, we talk about this today and we jump in Acts chapter 9, what's happened with us, what, what happened with Paul is we establish our life cycle. You have a cycle of life. Everybody does. 
And there's things that you do often and repetitiously, and there's things that you believe, and you do things because of what you believe. And so we determine things that we think to be true or that we want to be true, and then we live according to those plans, to that cycle. So as we begin chapter 9, we see someone who did that exact thing. We introduced, or reintroduced, if you will, again, to Saul. Now, Saul was his Israelite name, his Jewish name. A lot of people say, oh, well, then he got saved, and then his name changed to Paul. Well, that's not exactly true. His Israelite name was Saul. His Hebrew name was Paul. And uh, Paul means short in stature. And so it's believed that Paul was a little guy. And uh, he had developed this belief system in his life that he based all of his actions upon. And so as we dive into chapter 9, you'll see exactly what I mean this morning. So in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. And so he said if, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, for our discussion today, we'll simply refer to him as Paul. Paul was very intent on preserving Jewish culture. And uh, as Paul had come to believe the different things in his life uh, that had come to pass, he believed that this new thing, this new situation, this new way as he coined it, uh, was opposite. It was against Christianity. Uh, it, there's no way this could be uh, the Messiah. And so because Jesus was crucified, I can't believe that. And so Paul built his life in a continuation of the Jewish upbringing, as we'll discuss in a minute, that he had. And then as he is on his way to Damascus, now of course, the, you know, unless you're familiar with geography, you wouldn't know this, but Damascus is not next door. You know, it's not so sure to Gulfport, right? You know, Paul is going a long way. Paul is going over 100 miles. He's asking for permission to go and to seek out these Christians. Now, if you think logically about this, he is in Jerusalem. He wants to go out and he wants to find these people. Well, if you are a believer and Saul, as we, Paul, as we just read, is breathing murderous threats, well, what are you going to do? You're going to get out of town, right? You're going to go. And so you're probably going to go as far as you can, as far as the animal that you're riding will take you. And so here Damascus is 100, 120 miles away from Jerusalem. And Paul says, I will go to the ends of the earth to find the people that are promoting this new way, this Jesus that they're talking about. And then we see in verse 3 that something happened. So it says in verse 3, now, as he went on his way, so he's going to Damascus, he, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Uh-oh. What happened, right? Now, wait a minute. I have a mission, a life cycle. I have a direction that I'm going. He's Paul. He's going to kill Christians to drag them, the Bible says, back to Jerusalem and try to convict them, to try to kill them, to have them killed. And all of a sudden, he has this encounter. The Bible says that this bright light shone around him in verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? All of a sudden, everything changed in his life. 
Everything that he had believed up until this moment, now everything was on the table for debate. Now wait a minute. There's this light that he encounters the risen Lord Jesus, the one in whom he did not believe in. Everything absolutely changed for him. Now, have you ever had one of those moments? You know, it's a phone call, maybe it's a, a diagnosis, it's, a, uh, it's a, a lost job. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's those moments in life, right, where everything changes in the moment of time and the course of your life is altered forever. I've had phone calls in the past. We, several years ago, had family members pass away in a car accident and the phone call in the middle of the night, hey, listen, your uncle and cousin were killed in a car accident. Right? We've, we've all had those moments in life where it just hits you right in the face. So here's Saul on his way to Damascus, and Jesus met him face to face. So in verse 3, this light shines around Paul. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. This is the same light that you grew up as a child uh, rehearsing the verse in Matthew 5, 16 where Jesus says, in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's that same light that Jesus was talking about there in Matthew that he references here in verse 3. And so Saul, Paul falls to the ground And he bows before this light. He acknowledges Jesus and who he is. Now, it's ironic that we see Paul kneeling, falling, prostrate before this light, right? Because the last time, the only time that we have heard anything about this guy is, if you remember back in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, it says, they cast him out of the city, which was uh, Stephen, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul has been part of this conviction of Stephen, and Stephen is convicted for following Jesus. And you know the story in Acts chapter 7, we covered that. Stephen was drug outside the city, and he was stoned, and Stephen was dying, and Stephen prayed for the people that God would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And there's a man that's standing there watching all of this happen, in a position of authority, and they're casting Stephen's clothes at Saul's feet. And so here's Saul standing over a Jesus follower. And then the next time we see him in Acts chapter 9, he is kneeling before that very Jesus. The man who once stood over as Stephen was being stoned for his beliefs was now kneeling in fear to the personification of that same belief system. And so in verse 5, this is what the Bible says, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this is where Paul's belief system fell apart. Remember that life cycle that we're all in, the belief system that we've all grown up in or that we've built in our life? This is where his fell apart. All that he had lived for and believed was confronted in this moment And everything that he had lived for, that he had based his life upon, every bit of that completely failed him in this moment. Because he thought 
everything to be true in what he believed, that Jesus was not real, that it was false, that this belief system, that this fellowship of this man that they called Jesus, whom they say uh, was crucified, that he was the Messiah, that he resurrected on the third day, that cannot be true. They are not going to hang a Jewish Messiah on a tree. Uh, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. He grew up believing that, and all of a sudden, he is before the resurrected Jesus, the one who he says, doesn't exist. So everything that he believed up until now had utterly failed him in this moment. Everything that he had believed had just been proven wrong. So here he kneels before Jesus. He discovers in this moment that Jesus was in fact alive. He was in fact alive. If you want to go back and read a little more about this, Paul basically in the defense of the resurrection uh, writes in 1 Corinthians 15, a very popular passage, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and the proof of the resurrection of Jesus. As we approach Easter, that is certainly a topic that we celebrate. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks at length about the resurrection of Jesus. And he talks about how Jesus appeared to him. You see, Paul finds out in this moment that Jesus is alive. You see, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter is preaching. We studied this earlier, and this is what Peter says. You kill the author of life. This will come up on the screen here. You kill the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter's preaching, and who knows if Paul is around, if he's in the audience. He's heard about this Jesus. Paul is certainly against this Jesus, and Peter proclaims, this Jesus, the author of life, is the one that you murdered, that you hung on a cross for six hours one Friday. And Paul said, blasphemy, that's not true. And yet in this moment, it becomes absolutely true. You see, he discovered that he was wrong by persecuting Jesus. Because Jesus said here, in verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord, Paul says. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That ought to encourage us as believers that anything that's spoken against us in the name of Jesus is actually against the Lord Jesus, right? Jesus said, it's me that you're persecuting. Now, it was Stephen who was stoned, but Stephen was stoned in the name of Jesus, right? And so, Jesus said, hey, listen, Saul, you're persecuting me. You see, Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, as to zeal, this will be on the board, a persecutor of the church. Paul said, listen, in my previous life, this is salvation. Uh, this is pre-salvation. Paul's given his testimony here. He says, as to zeal, I was very zealous, but for the wrong things. I was persecuting the church as to righteousness under the law. I was blameless. Paul said, listen, if there was a, a Pharisee law, if there was a Jewish law, I was number one in obedience to that. I was good at abiding by the social norms of the world. And all of a sudden, he's confronted by the Jesus that he didn't even believe existed. And so he asked the question, what do you want me to do? Now, this is not present in a lot of translations, but if you read it in the original language Greek, you'll see that Paul asked the question, what do you want me to do? He acknowledges lordship because everything that he believed up until this moment was totally wrong. And so everything was fair game at this moment, right? The slate of his heart was wiped clean. 
And anything that he was to believe about Jesus was about to be written. You see, Paul's life was very different right now than everything that he had experienced up until this moment. He was very close to the age of Jesus. He was born around the same time, a few years different. Studied a lot. We'll look at that in a second. He spent a lot of time studying Jewish culture. And so his immediate response was what? It was a request for obedience. Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? On the back of your handout, when you have your discussion time with your group, you'll notice that the question is there, when is the last time you asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? You see, that's what lordship is. Lordship is submitting, it is kneeling, it is surrendering before God and saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do. God, I want to follow you where you're leading. I want to be a part of what you're a part of. Jesus, what do you want me to do? And so as we see the continuation of the story, verse 6, Jesus continues. He says, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. So the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. Now he's a hundred miles away from Jerusalem. He is now in Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You think, right? I mean, you're on the way to Damascus with this master plan, and all of a sudden God intersects your life. God encounters you right where you're at in the midst of his sin. God encountered him. God intersected his life, and he completely changed the direction. And so when Saul shows up into Damascus, remember, he's going to kill people. When he shows up into Damascus, he has a completely different agenda. The whole life cycle agenda of Paul at this moment has totally changed. And so for three days, he sat in blindness. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. He did nothing. It says in verse 10, there was a, there was a disciple, there was a believer at Damascus named Ananias. Now, the Lord said to him in a vision. Now, this is not the same Ananias that was killed in chapter 5 for lying to the Holy Spirit, obviously. This is a different Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he says, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, I want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes for just a second. There's a man named Saul coming to town. Word got out that he's on his way. So if you want to live, if you want to save your neck, you might want to hide away for a couple days, <clears throat> right? You, want to, you might want to slip into the darkness and, uh, you know, just kind of be silent. Just don't answer any questions. Don't go to the temple for those days that Saul's around because you might be identified with this Jesus guy, and uh, that's not going to work out good for you if Saul sees it. So he has this vision, the Bible says, that the Lord comes to Ananias, and he says, Ananias, there's a man named Saul. Now, can you imagine in Ananias' mind, he says, yeah, I know who he is, and I'm hiding from him right now. Any other questions, right? 
And, uh, and God says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Saul. Wait a minute. Now, what? Right? You, you want me to go to someone who is intent on killing people just like me? You, you've got to be confused, Jesus. Did, did you mean Saul? Right? It could be. It's got to be somebody else, right? Maybe you got the wrong address. Maybe you should redial in that GPS, God. I don't think this is the right guy I'm supposed to go see. See, Ananias was a good guy. We'll learn in Acts chapter 22 that uh, it says, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there. Ananias was a believer. Ananias had a reputation for following Jesus. Ananias was a Jesus follower. And the word Ananias, the name means the Lord is gracious. Now, I want you to think about this for a second, all right? This is what the Bible says. We just read it. It says, rise, verse 11. The Lord said to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight. There's a man named Saul there. Ananias is going to meet Saul. And I want you to put this together, okay? God sent Saul to a street named Straight. And so as God is straightening out Saul's life, he sends a man to talk to him by the name of Ananias. That means the Lord is gracious. So the gracious Lord Jesus, as he's straightening out Paul's life, he sends somebody to walk beside him. Is that not amazing? There's no coincidences, right? That road was named far, far before Saul ever showed up in town, and Ananias was born way before Saul showed up in town. But yet the Lord is gracious, and he straightened out Saul's path. And so he tells Saul, he says, listen, there's going to be a man that will be praying. And so this is Ananias' first clue. Okay, so there's going to be a man on this street that will be praying. He's at the house of Judas, and I want you to look for a man of Tarsus named Saul because he's going to be praying. And so this is a clue for Ananias, right? So listen to what the Bible says in Matthew 6. It says, this will come up, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Truly, I tell you, they already have their reward. But when you pray, go into your inner room, shut your door, and pray to the Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He says, listen, there'll be a man in a house praying. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, and Pharisees like to pray out in public, and they like to fast out in public and say, oh, I'm famished. Look at me. I haven't eaten for three days because I'm spiritual, and I'm praying, and I'm, I'm fasting before the Lord. And yet, Jesus tells Ananias, there will be a man praying in a house. And so Saul says, that's my first clue. While we're on this commercial break, we've talked about Facebook, uh, right? So... If you go out, and hopefully you do, I'm sure you do, and you do things for the Lord, don't take a picture of yourself doing those things for the Lord and put it on Facebook, right? This isn't about you. So it's not about us, it's about Him. And so when we do things in the name of Jesus, when we do things for the glory of Jesus, we don't need praise, we don't need a pat on the back, we don't need someone to say, well done, Matt, right? Because of why we're doing it. And so Ananias gets this clue and he says, listen, this man will be praying in a house. The Bible says, I'm sorry, rather Charles Spurgeon says, he says this about prayer. Prayer is the autograph of the Holy Ghost upon the renewed heart. 
You see, if you are born again, if you have committed your life to follow Jesus, guess what will be a part of your life? Prayer will be. And prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon your life. In other words, you will participate in prayer because of what God has done for you. You will spend time with Jesus because Jesus came to you and He encountered you where you're at. And so we see that Ananias is sent to this house. And so in verse 13, Ananias answered. He says, Lord, are you sure about this? He says, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Verse 14. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed. And he entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, he goes and he says, okay, Lord, you, you know he, who he is, right? Just so we're on the same page, this is the same guy that the chief priest gave the authority to kill all Christians. That's the same guy, right? We're talking about the same man. It's the same street called Straight. Like, there's not a second road called Straight that I don't know about, right? Like, is Damascus public authority, did they build another road that that I'm not familiar with. I've heard all these reports about this man and what he has done. You see, nobody in their logical mind would have gone. Don't sit there and think, well, if God told me, I would go. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't go no more than anybody else would go. As a matter of fact, you would say, that must have been just me. God didn't really say that. I'm just going to go hide. I got to preserve. Listen, I got to preach next Sunday. Remember, he's a devout man, right? And so he's probably leading people. I got a small group to teach, God. Like, I can't do that. Oh, you gave me three kids to raise. Who will raise them, God? I can't do this. Nobody would go. You see, that's that whole cultural Jesus that we've established in our life, and that when God calls us to do things that are illogical, we talked about this in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, when God calls us to do things that require faith, I'm not really sure if that was Jesus or if that was Taco Sombrero that was talking, right? Right? That's not logical. So here, Ananias' belief system, look at this. It's all of a sudden challenged. It's confronted. Do I believe in the Jesus that I say I believe in? Will I follow this Jesus who I say I will follow? And will I do what he says for me to do? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stand, I'll stand. I will follow you. You've heard that song. Chris Tomlin's made it very popular, right? Will we do that? Wherever he leads, you grew up, if you grew up in church, you sang a hymn. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Well, have you done that? Right? We say all these songs and we do all these, we, we create this cultural life cycle Jesus and we say, this is what I believe to be true about Jesus only because it's comfortable. And if there's any challenge to your belief system, if it's pushing you outside of your comfort zone, well then count me out, I'm not doing it. God's not going to call me to do something that I'm not comfortable doing. That's just not my lane. I'm just not comfortable doing that. That's not my gift. That's somebody else's gift, right? We've all said those things. God, that just doesn't make any sense. You must have, uh, you know, that, that, that command was for 
the pew behind me. That wasn't for me, right? <laughs> oh, did he believe, did he really believe that Jesus was sovereign? Here's the answer to the question that Ananias has to answer. Jesus, are you sovereign? Are you sovereign? Okay, you want me to go, you want me to, to, to talk to a man who is sent here to kill me. You see, in life, you'll be confronted, I'll be confronted with these faith moments, and your response in those moments will declare your faith. We spent a long time in Hebrews 11, it's been really good, and so you'll recognize the first blank on your handout from Hebrews chapter 11. It is the authenticity of your faith, the authenticity of your faith is determined by the weapon that you choose. If you say that you believe then your faith will be in Jesus, and the weapon that you choose in that moment will be prayer. Remember, prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon the renewed heart. And so the weapon that you choose in the battle that you fight determines who your faith is in. And so if you say, well, by my resources, I will solve this problem, then your faith is not in Jesus. Your faith is in yourself. Or if you say by, uh, you know, someone that I call or a situation that I construct or that I manipulate or that I force, well, if I make that happen, I'm not having faith in anything that Jesus has done. I'm just having faith in the circumstances of what I think I can do. We all do that. It, it, listen, it's, it's so true. But if the authenticity of your faith is in Jesus, well, then guess what b- uh, weapon you're going to choose to fight in that battle? The Bible says that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by what? By the word of our testimony, by what Jesus Christ has done in our life in and through the word of God through prayer, right? That's exactly what weapon we'll choose. We'll choose the word of God. This is the, the, uh, the only weapon that we have in the battle, in the spiritual battle that we fight that is offensive is what? It is the Word of God. Your Word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalms 119.11, kingdom kids learned that last week. Your Word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalms 119.11, that is what offensively we have as believers against the enemy. And in your life, if you are using a weapon other than the Word of God in your life, well, guess what? You're going to lose that battle. You're going to lose it every single time, 100% failure rate. If your faith is not in Jesus, well, guess what? You will fail. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And so if your belief system is predicated upon something that you can't accomplish, you will fail. So Ananias says, okay, we're clear that this is not a friendly guy, but I believe, and my belief system is that Jesus is sovereign, and so I will go. So Ananias, verse 17, departed, and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of those aha moments for everybody in the room, right? Uh, Ananias has not talked to uh, Paul up until this moment, yet he knows that he came from Jerusalem, that on that route from Jerusalem that Jesus encountered him. And so I would imagine that Saul, who can't see, by the way, is probably like, okay, I'm listening. I don't know who you are, I never heard your voice before, but you know something about me that nobody else should know, and so let's talk. 
And so, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Having arisen, being baptized, he called upon the name of the Lord. You see, Saul's encounter with Jesus intersected his life. God called him to himself. The Bible says in verse, the latter part of verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So here Paul encountered Jesus. He was blind for three days. He did not eat or drink for three days. Ananias shows up. Both of their belief systems had been completely challenged. Paul's completely fell apart. Ananias was completely cemented in his life, right? Those God moments where God calls you to do something and you obey and God comes through and all of a sudden you're on cloud nine, right? That God, what God called you to do, he did, that he was faithful, that the goodness of God shone through in that moment. And so somebody then in verse 19 discipled Paul. Now, can you imagine that? Right? He um, he discipled Paul. Someone discipled him. That They sat with Paul. They talked to him about, remember, Paul was trained in diatribe is what they called it, which was uh, this debate language. He was a lawyer. He was smart. He was super smart. And so he was, he was uh, trained in this back-and-forth debate-type lingo. So can you imagine having the conversation that, listen, Paul, everything that you've learned is wrong. So here's everything that you need to know about Jesus, right? We, we confuse things and we make things, we focus on things that completely don't matter, right? We won't, listen, we were, at the, we were at the block party yesterday and there was this guy that came up to me, we were chatting, and uh, he was, you know, as, as we are out in public, we, we run across different people and so... You know, there were some people there yesterday that said, oh, well, you know, I was raised Catholic, and, you know, a couple of other uh, different belief systems were mentioned. And so there's this guy there yesterday, and he says, uh, he was talking about church, and he was talking about other belief systems, and he says, you know, they're basically all the same. And I said, okay, you know, listen, I'm, we're, we're sitting on grass out in the middle of a neighborhood that I don't live in. It's not my job to correct his theology, right? This is what I told him. You know, in those moments, you know, I want to have something in my pocket that I can say, look, I can say this, and God will be honored, and I'm not walking away condoning a, in a false belief system, right? So this is what I said. I said, look, we try to keep things real simple at our church. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're just trying to love our neighbors, man. Right? We're just trying to love our neighbors. We don't have to complicate it, right? You don't have to go across the road to your neighbor's house and quote the book of Mark, right? They just need to know somebody loves them, right? We do. We love because Christ loved us. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 13, 35, that they'll know that you're my disciples by what? By your love one for another. You don't have to complicate this. Ananias said, God, I love you. I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you say there's a brother that I need to go talk to. I'm going to go love my neighbor, Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. So this, this confrontation with this belief system 
It happened for Ananias and it happened for Paul. And so I want to encourage you with this, just a few takeaways this morning as we, as we get towards the end. Number, number one, the first thing, that number one on your handout is this. The course, the course of your life is not always determined by your upbringing. The course of your life is not determined by your... Don't, don't believe that the way you were raised is going to control your life. That's not true. That is a lie. Listen, Saul was born in Tarsus. He was motherless at the age of nine. His mom died when he was nine. And he was the son of a prominent tent maker, which is why he became a tent maker. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes this, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. He had it all figured out, right? There was a path in his life that he had determined by his father and by his mother and by himself that he bought into. And he said, this is the path that they have chosen. His parents were both Pharisees, and they made sure that Paul was very educated. And so they looked to Jerusalem as the Mecca of their belief system. And so uh, his mom died at 9, at you know 10 to 13. Paul went to Jerusalem, as best we can tell. And he studied for the next five or six years under Gamaliel. You've heard that name before. Gamaliel was the grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel. He took a very lenient view of the Old Testament law. I mean, right, if you're writing your own rules, you're going to make it easy on yourself, right? And so Paul wanted to be on the Sanhedrin, which, if you don't know, was a council uh, or a, you know, a board of 70 elders plus the high priest and and so all signs point to the fact that, guess what? He made it. Good job, Paul. Life's ambition to be on the Sanhedrin, the top 70, you know, the fastest to 100, the most popular under 40, whatever, you know, the Fortune 500. You did it, man. Good job. Life's goal. You accomplished it. You knocked it out. You got three master's degrees. You're the man. Right? And so in his life, he had accomplished all the things that he set out to accomplish. He says this in verse uh, 26, 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I was convinced. That's what I was supposed to do. Right? That's what's happened in our world today is we've allowed the world to define the trajectory of our life. And most of the time it happens with our childhood. And we look back and we say, well, I was just raised that way. Or I was always taught to do that. It was just the way we've always done it. I mean, if we've ever seen an example of how God can take broken childhood and completely change that direction, it's Pastor Tony, right? Right? And so here Paul could have easily looked back on his life and used it. Listen, he could have used it as an excuse to be hardened. Look, mom died at night. I didn't have anything to do. And so they shipped me off when I was 10. What do you expect I'm going to do? I'm just going to try to abide by the rules, man. I'm just going to try to exist in the system. I was a nobody. I was someone who didn't have a mom. Everybody else was going to their ball games and everybody else was having all this fun stuff. I didn't have any of that. Do you know what it's like to grow up without a mom? Right, that's what Paul, he could have used all of this as an excuse not to become who God wanted him to be. He grew up with incredibly high expectations that he put on himself because he had nothing else to do. And so he says, well, I'm just going to try to be the best I can be. You see, 
God often, God's plan often confronts our plan, and one always changes. I don't know what your plans are for your life, but when God intersects your life, when God confronts your plans, one of those plans always changes. Either you change your plans to adhere to God's, or you completely walk away from everything that God had in store for you. Remember, the course of your life is not always determined by your upbringing. Saul was going to Damascus, the road to Damascus that Saul thought was leading him to kill Christians. No, that's not what happened. The road to Damascus didn't lead Paul to Jesus, but Jesus led Paul to Damascus. You thought about that? Listen, Paul didn't get on the road and go find Jesus. That's not what happened. No, listen, Paul had his own agenda, and he had his own plan, and God confronted that plan, and guess what happened? Saul's plan changed. Jesus led Paul to Damascus. You say, what in the world? How is that possible? He was on a route to kill people, and yet in his sin, Jesus intersected him. That sounds familiar, right? Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen, right? And so here we see this master plan that Paul had in his mind, and then all of a sudden he has this divine encounter with Jesus. You see, God had to do something to get Paul's attention. I've had this conversation before, and so people, you know, they come in, they check church out, they leave. They come in, they check Jesus out. People that do this in your life, you invite them maybe or they show up, whatever it may be. They come and check things out and then they drift away and you don't see them for a while. And and here's what happens. The catalyst, it, it happens almost every time. The catalyst that brings people to the Lord is is normally a tragedy, right? It's a bad situation. Maybe it happened in your life. Maybe that's how you encountered the risen Jesus is that in your life something bad happened And you had nowhere else to look but up, right? Jesus blinded Paul. He had no sight. The Bible says that his buddies, they they picked him up and they helped, they led him into the city. He had to depend solely upon someone else. That's what normally happens in our life is that God brings us, he allows the circumstances in our life to bring us to our knees. Paul knelt before the Lord and in that moment we have great clarity, that we can see Jesus for who he really is. See, Ananias, on the other hand, was very comfortable leading his own private Christian life. But God would use him as a part of the plan to reach one of the most hardened Christian murderers in the history of the church who would become one of the most prolific believers in history. Can you imagine the celebration in heaven When Ananias stepped into eternity and Jesus said, well done. Well done, Ananias. You see, listen, don't let your upbringing, don't let it determine your life. Jesus has written a story for you that is far beyond what you could ever imagine or hope for. And that story That story is being written as you, if you're alive, God is still writing your story. So don't blame life on what happened in the past. But look to the future and say, Jesus, what is it that you are calling me 
to do. What are you calling me to do? You see, our belief system, number two, it rarely requires faith. But God's always requires faith. You cannot operate without faith if you're following Jesus. You cannot do it. But what happens in our life is we, we build this belief system and we begin to follow this belief system in our life. And then it doesn't require faith because we put safety nets everywhere. Right? God, I'm going to go do this for you, but if it doesn't work out, I've got a safety net. Don't worry about that. I'm going to be okay. I will stretch only as far as I'm comfortable stretching. But listen, our belief system doesn't require faith. God's always will. This is how God reveals our need for faith and our dependency upon Him. It's through faith. You see, Saul was comfortable in his religious system. He had, he had learned how to be the best in that system. One of the things that drives me crazy about our church culture is that we get into these routines of church and we get good at it, which is bad, but we get good at these routines of church, these religious activities that don't, I mean, there's a lot of churches that are bogged down in religious activities and nobody's getting saved, nobody's being baptized, they're not reaching anybody for the kingdom, but they're busy, they're busy in these religious activities and these religious systems and we get comfortable in those and then if somebody's not good at our religious system, well then, you know, they just, they got to grow a little bit, right? Or they'll figure it out or they're just not like us or maybe this is not the best place for you. What? What does that even mean? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the system you ought to follow. Saul was comfortable in this religious system. It was acceptable. For hundreds of years, nothing had changed. But faith was required to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And Paul chose to remain part of the status quo. He says, well, that's too radical for me. The Messiah is not going to hang on a tree. I'm not following you. He didn't want to believe, and so he chose to believe what the crowd believed, that what was acceptable. You see, God could have easily done it all himself, right? He could have had this moment by himself, and he, uh, he could have revealed himself to Paul, and Paul could have shown up in Damascus and said, hey, guys, listen, uh, just want to let you know. I was listening to a podcast, and I heard this really good preacher, and now I'm a follower, and so, all right, let's get to work. Who's going to believe that, right? I'm like, no, you're not. You're tricking me, man. I'm not letting you in. No. God chose, <clears throat> he chose to use people as a part of his plan. There's a very popular belief system that believes this guy ran off in the woods and found these documents by himself and translated them by himself and then destroyed them. And he was the only one who saw them because God only showed him. That's not how God operates, is it? Right? Doesn't God reveal himself through the use of other people? Ananias didn't have to be a part of this, but God chose to use him. You're, you, listen, you don't have to be a part of your neighbor's salvation story, but maybe God wants to use you. Right? You don't have to be a part of your co-worker's story, but maybe God wants to use you. You are in that moment. God planted you where you are for a reason because God uses people. And when God uses people, it requires those people to have faith. Ananias had planned on hiding while Saul was in Damascus, but Jesus, Jesus had other plans. 
Jesus challenged Ananias' belief system. He says, if you say you want to follow me, well, then here's where I'm going. I'm going to Saul. Right? You want to follow? Here's where I'm going. Remember, wherever he leads, I'll go. We sing that. Wherever you lead, Jesus, I'm going. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm going to be over here with uh, murderer Saul, right? Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house today. Jesus, why are you talking to the woman at the well? Don't you know she's an adulterer? Jesus, where are you going? Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, I have come to seek and save those who were lost. Luke chapter 15 says Jesus will leave the 99 to go and find that one that's lost. That's where Jesus is going. Jesus is looking for people that are lost to redeem them, to rescue them, to encounter them. You see, faith will require you to move in order to know the next step. Faith will require you to move in order to know the next step. You can't say, listen, Ananias, in that moment, Ananias couldn't say, okay, Jesus, you're calling me to go to Saul. That sounds amazing. Let me know how it turns out. Right? I mean, that's not faith. Listen, let's just be honest. We're all Baptists. You came to a Baptist church today. I'm assuming you're Baptist. We all believe the same thing. I'm assuming you came to this church, so you probably believe the same thing we believe. Right? And so we say things like, faith can move mountains. Well, when is the last time you saw somebody move a mountain with their faith? Like, don't just say that stuff. Right? Believe it. It's in the, it's in the Word of God. What have you done in your life that requires faith? I mean, I love it that you're here, but coming this morning and sitting on a padded pew didn't cause you much faith today, right? It didn't. Now, if we're in another part of the country, it probably requires quite a bit of faith. So don't say that coming to church required faith for you today because, you know, unless, you know, that sketchy intersection at 53 and 49 is what you had to cross, you didn't have to have much faith, right? So faith will require you to move. You have to move. You have to mobilize. That's what faith does. Ananias, I want you to go from where you are to the street called Straight, and I want you to go to this man named Saul because I got something you need to tell him. And in your life, when Jesus calls you to do something, when you answer the question, Jesus, what do you want me to do? He will call you to do something that will require you to move. It will require you to move. Listen, we sang standing on the promises all my life growing up, but what actually happens in most Baptist churches is they're sitting on the premises and they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything. We're not mobilizing. We got two billion people in the world who say that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Do you see revival breaking out? Because revival, by definition, is where believers come back to Jesus. That's what revival is. It's not just a whole new wave of people getting saved, but it's where the followers of Jesus, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What does 2 Chronicles seven fourteen say? Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Then what the Bible says? Revival. When are we going to stand up and mobilize, believers? When are we going to move? When are we going to say, like Ananias said, yes, Lord, because all of your promises are in yes and amen, right? All your promises are in yes and amen. Ananias was obedient. 
Saul received his sight when he was obedient. Faith in your life will be activated when you are obedient, when you move. In verse 16, he says, for I will show him. Jesus is telling Ananias, and so Ananias, in response to obedience, he goes. He said, our belief system rarely requires faith, but God's always does. Number three this morning, who you are now, who you are now is not all you will become. Amen? Who you are now is not all that you will become. Since we're talking about childhood songs, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, right? It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and, impatient, how loving and patient he must be. Now with me, he's probably impatient. He's still working on me, right? Right? Who you are right now today, your story is not over. God is still writing your story. And it may be like uh, Paul Listen, your story may be like Paul, that you may be far off track, that you may be careening off into destruction, and Jesus this morning is encountering you, and he's saying, hey, come home. Listen, i got a plan for you. I've got a plan for your life. I have a destiny for you. I created you with a plan in mind, and I didn't just create you to sit and sour. I created you to serve, to live a life of faith. Who you are today is not all you will become. Paul lived his whole life up until this point in anticipation of achieving the plans that he had for his own life. Woe is me that we get to the end of life and accomplish our plans. But that's not how Paul's life ended. Thank God Paul's life did not end that way. You see, the prince of lies will always deceive you into believing your own lies. The enemy had deceived Paul into believing that he had faith in the right things. You see, Satan, he's okay with the word faith. You say you have faith, he's okay with that. James 2.19 says the demons in hell believe and yet tremble. Satan's okay with the word faith. He's okay with the word Christian. He's okay with the word church. He's okay with that. Why would he be okay with that? Well, he's okay with those words because we've redefined those words. We've redefined them. Do you know what Satan is not okay with? He's not okay with following Jesus the way the Bible declares. He's not okay with loving Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. He's not, he's not okay with that. You see, the enemy, Satan, he can tolerate accidental goodness. Goodness that's without God's indwelling presence, right? Paul was doing these things religiously in expectation that it was good. And in our belief system, we can build things that we believe are good based on our interpretation. And so Satan was, was okay with Paul doing that, of course. This type of goodness, though, is only temporary. We know it as behavioral modification, right? It doesn't result in a changed life. Look at Paul. Right, he built, he built his own belief system, and he was worshiping, right? He was worshiping. He had faith. He was following the belief system of the day. What challenged, or rather what changed Paul's life was an encounter, though, with the real Jesus, not the perceived God of works. It wasn't his actions that redeemed Paul. It was Jesus who redeemed Paul. 
But Paul could have looked at his life and said, you know, mom died at nine. They shipped me off at 10. I really never had a chance. He could look back at his life and say, I was tricked by all the deception of all the rules, the 613 rules that the Pharisees have. I was tricked by all that. And so there's no way that God can use me. How many times have you heard that story? I've done too much wrong. I'm too far from God. I've got to get cleaned up. I've got to do better. When this happens, I'll come to church. And we use all of these excuses to believe that God can't use me. Well, I'm here this morning to, be- to tell you that you shouldn't believe the lie that you've messed up too much for God to use you. Look at the life of Paul. That you, this is common among church people, I just missed what God had for me. You ever heard that? I just missed it. Who's God in this situation again? It's not me. It's not you. God is sovereign, right? And so God uses all things for our good and for his glory. And so we say, oh, well, I just missed what God had for me. Well, no, the kingdom of truth, this is what needs to happen in your life. The the kingdom of truth must take the place of the tyranny of deception. You've been deceived in believing that. And the word of God calls men by to a standard of freedom that you can be set free from the tyranny of deception. And what happens when we encounter the Word of God, when we encounter the real Jesus, we're able to, to escape the delusions of the flesh, that we're not good enough, that God can never use me, that my past is too tainted, that I missed the boat. Those are all lies from the devil. It's completely not true. You see, it's those who are following their own belief system that are unable to see their great need for redemption because they've convinced themselves that whatever it is that they're doing is good. And that is what they're supposed to be doing. You see, on your handout there, obedience without relationship. You see, if you're not following Jesus, if your obedience is without a relationship with Jesus, that is simply slavery. Obedience without relationship is slavery. True obedience through relationship is fellowship. True obedience through relationship Right? We love because Jesus first loved us. It's through Jesus that we follow. We have been adopted into the family of God, into relationship with God the Father. You see, what God did for you and for me is that God ransomed us. The Bible says in Psalms 49, 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God ransomed you, and he ransomed me. Listen, I know we have our own definition of that. Christ does not ransom us in such a sense as to release us. Listen, he he didn't see you and me captive by sin and say, I'm going to pay the penalty and let them free. That is not what Jesus did. This is not your life. This is not my life. It's his life. He is the creator. He did not ransom me and you and simply let us go. He ransomed us back into his own rights. He bought us back. Listen, he didn't save you and set you free. He set you free to serve him. You are in the family of God now if you are a believer. We're not simply redeemed, listen to this, we are not simply redeemed from the wrath of God or the punishment of God. God didn't just free us from that, but we are redeemed from the power of the enemy, which results in the wrath of God. Think about this, the cause, the cause of our sin, which is human nature, the cause of the action was redeemed. 
not just the action itself. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and say, I'm paying for everybody's sins. What Jesus did is he says, I am giving you my righteousness. He gave you his nature. And so he didn't just redeem your sinful and my sinful actions. He changed what was causing those sinful actions. That's why Ezekiel says that he will put a new heart in us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 says that all things become new, right? Because he puts a new spirit inside of us. He changes us. That's what salvation is. Listen, don't show up on Sunday morning and believe that you're doing God a favor and living the rest of the week for yourself. That is not fellowship. You, didn't, you weren't ransomed for that. That's not why Jesus hung on the cross for six hours one Friday. He died on the cross to have a relationship with you because you belong to him because you are his creation. We have all these things happen in our life and we say, God can't use me. God's done using me. What's going on? Right, I've shared my story in here before. God called us off to seminary. It was very tough. We didn't understand everything. Finished there. We moved back. God, what are you doing? Where are you leading us? What do you want us to do? Then, you know, six, eight months later, God moved us again to a place down on the coast. We didn't know anybody. No friends, zero friends, knew no one. We started visiting around, visited a few churches. Ended up at Michael. I sat in the back row for several, several weeks. God, what, what, what are you doing with Matt? You remember me, God? Life beat me up a little bit. Church beat me up a little bit. God, God do you remember me? God, do you, have, do you still have a plan for me, God? God, is there something... Is there something I should be doing? You want me to, is there something I can do, God? So 2013, 2014, sitting in the back row, right? God, what are you doing? God, what, I know, I know you're sovereign, God. God, I know you have a plan for me. God, are you finished with me? Mother's Day weekend, 2014. We went down to Florida. We're on the beach. Don't know anybody there. A couple people with us from the family. And I look over in the distance, and there is a, there's a group of people. And, uh, and it looks like they're baptizing people. Who does that in Destin, right? So I thought, well, I have to go over there, right? The preachers have to do that, right? So I had to go over there. Remember, I'm... God, are you, are you done with me? Is there something I can be doing? So these people are baptizing. So I walk over there. Melanie and I walk over. and I just kind of get close to the action, you know. And so one of them notices that we're not part of the group. And, they, you know, like, hey. I said, hey, I mean, this is, this is awesome, y'all. These people got saved? Yeah. Man, that's awesome. And the preacher walks over, the, the pastor, the leader there, he walks over and he says, uh, yeah, man, you know, God, God saved these people. And, and we thought, hey, listen, let's come out right now and baptize. So they brought, brought these people out that just got saved and they're baptizing them. And so, you know, he's telling me what happened. And I didn't say anything. I'm just listening. 
And he looks at me and he said, he said, you're a preacher, aren't you? And I said, uh, well, I, yeah, I, I preached a little bit. I used to be a preacher. Preached a little bit. And he said, well, God has big plans for your life. I couldn't say anything. Here I am five years later looking back at that moment. God has big plans for your life. I remember telling Melanie, that guy doesn't know me. How, do, how does he know that God has plans for my life? And two years later, guess what? I'm on staff at Michael. Right? God said, I'm not done with you yet, Matt. He can take a bald, big-eared kid from Jones County, right? And he can say, I'm not done with you. I got plans for you. I'm writing your story. You see, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what life throws at you, no matter what you encounter, as long as you're still breathing, he's still working on you. You see, the last blank on your handout says this, that God is still writing with our story. He's still writing with our story. That whatever it is that you brought in here this morning, whatever baggage that you're dragging, whatever murderous thoughts that you've got in your mind, just like Paul, when you encounter Jesus, it changes everything. And so this morning, I want you to answer the question, Jesus, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you want me to do, Jesus? And then I pray that your fate will move you. Let's pray.